0: This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare care providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision-making and judgment of a qualified healthcare care professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare care provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Atrial Septal Defects by Dr. David Bailey.
1: My name is David Bailey. I am a fellow here at Boston Children's Hospital in the Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care. I am also a boarded pediatrician and a boarded pediatric cardiologist, and I'm going to speak with you today about atrial septal defects. Atrial septal defects are very common overall, and they're commonly seen in other cardiac lesions. Up to 50% of all cardiac constellations include an atrial septal defect. We're going to talk initially about the anatomy and the physiology of the different types of atrial septal defects, followed by the usual presentation, including some of the unusual presentations, followed by the imaging and diagnostic modalities used to help us treat and diagnose atrial septal defects, followed by initial management strategies for patients with atrial septal defects and the sequela of that lesion.
0: Anatomy and Physiology.
1: So to start out with the anatomy and physiology, uh, atrial septal defects are simply any defect in the atrial septum. They can be large, they can be small, they can be single, or there can be multiple defects anywhere within the atrial septum. The three broad categories that we typically divide them out into are secundum atrial septal defects, which account for about 70% of the defects that we see. And those are actually a defect in the primum portion of the septum from an embryologic standpoint. The second most common type is primum defects, which are defects in the atrial septum that occur in the inferior level of the atrial septum. They're often associated with AV canal defects, but they don't always have to be. The last type are these sinus venosus atrial septal defects, and they broadly fan out into two categories. Those involving the superior vena cava, which are the most common type, and those involving the inferior vena cava, which are the least common type. Those are essentially a defect in the lumen of the SVC and the lumen of a pulmonary vein such that there's a communication. The entrance to the pulmonary veins is actually normal back into the left atrium but because there's a communication between the wall of the pulmonary vein and the wall of the superior vena cava, a left to right shunt occurs. So the physiology of all atrial septal defects is essentially a left to right shunt at the atrial level that evokes a volume burden on the right side of the heart. And we can use box diagrams to illustrate this quite clearly. Box diagram here shows that we have the right atrium, the right ventricle into the pulmonary arteries, the blood will return to the left side of the heart into the left atrium, the left ventricle, and into the aorta. So if we draw blood flowing through the heart in the usual pathway, you'll see, denoted here is simply an arrow, blood going to the RA, the RV, the PAs, and then back to the left side of the heart. This is the usual course of blood flow, as you all know. Now, if there's an atrial septal defect, Once the blood returns to the left atrium, it essentially has a decision to make. Is it going to shunt to the right side of the heart or continue on to the left side of the heart? Mm -hmm. The definitive point of where the blood shunts is determined by the relative compliance of the two ventricles. Now at birth, the right ventricle is less compliant because it has essentially been behaving as a left ventricle in utero by providing systemic circulation through the ductus arteriosus. However, after birth, the placenta is detached, the lungs are inflated, the pulmonary vascular resistance drops, and the systemic vascular resistance rises over time as the LV supports a systemic circulation. And as we go through life and have coronary artery disease and other reasons to have hypertension, the LV becomes less compliant, the RV becomes more compliant. So initially, at birth there's very little shunting across the atrial level at the atrial level but over time as the rv relaxes and the lv becomes more stiff there's increased flow across the atrial septum into the right side of the heart and with this flow obviously it evokes a volume burden on the right side of the heart So more blood's going to the right atrium, the right ventricle, to the pulmonary arteries, and it's this physiology that describes the presentation and the echo findings that we describe, and this is the reason to go for surgical repair. Presentation. So how do these patients typically present? Usually it's a perfectly well, asymptomatic child that shows up for a well child check. They're about three years old, Parents have no complaints, no concerns, but during their check, someone actually hears a murmur. It's not a murmur that anyone's heard on prior occasions due to these compliance issues that we just talked about. The RV is finally relaxed to the point where there's enough flow through the right side of the heart that there's what we call a relative stenosis of the pulmonary valve. So you hear a two over six systolic ejection murmur as blood flows across the pulmonary valve. The pulmonary valve itself is normal. It's just there's extra blood flow from the atrial level shunt. So you hear a two over six injection murmur at the pulmonary valve position, which is the left upper sternal border. Now the, the heart sounds in atrial septal defect are very important to note. They're fixed and they're wide. They're fixed because of in the setting of a non-restrictive atrial septal defect, there's equalization of the respiratory influence on the right and left-sided cardiac outputs, which gives you a fixed S1 and S2. And it's wide because of the delayed emptying of the right ventricle causes a delayed closure of the pulmonary valve, giving you a wide and fixed split S2. In addition to the murmur of pulmonary stenosis, which we already talked about, They can also have a murmur of relative tricuspid stenosis. And over time, if the RV continues to enlarge, the tricuspid valve apparatus will stretch, and then you can have tricuspid regurgitation and a murmur that is uh, coincident with that as well. The main thing that we worry about in patients with atrial septal defects is the development of pulmonary vascular obstructive disease. Now, this is a rare presentation in this day and age when most of these murmurs are picked up by routine exams and through echocardiography. And it typically presents in the second decade of life and in less than 10% of the population. Other presentations include atrial arrhythmias, again, we believe due to the right atrial enlargement that causes arrhythmias. Now, there's a small subset of patients with atrial septal defects that actually present with failure to thrive or cyanosis. These are outliers. Any patient who has failure to thrive or cyanosis with an isolated atrial septal defect should undergo a very thorough evaluation for other causes for failure to thrive and cyanosis, um, including but not limited to reflex, um, obstructive sleep apnea. And there's also been case series that have found that many of these patients with failure to thrive and atrial septal defects often have spontaneous closure of their atrial septal defects implying that perhaps for whatever reason there was some degree of left atrial hypertension whether it was from a coarct or something else that caused over time a spontaneous closure of the atrial septal defect when in fact originally it may have been more of a stretched foramen from the high left atrial pressures
0: imaging and diagnostic workup
1: Imaging is a key component of identifying and diagnosing atrial septal defects. Echocardiography is the benchmark and for diagnosing these lesions, as we're usually able to get adequate windows to diagnose the lesion itself, its location, as well as the size. An important concept to remember, regardless of the immune gene modality used, is that all key neighboring structures need to be identified, particularly the pulmonary veins. 10% of patients with uh, secundum atrial defects can have an anomalous pulmonary venous return, so it's important that all the pulmonary veins are seen prior to surgical repair. EKG findings are uh, usually significant for some right axis deviation, positive 90 to positive 180 degrees, some right ventricular hypertrophy, and uh, or right heart enlargement. The chest x-ray also shows right heart enlargement, perhaps a prominent main pulmonary artery, some cephalization or increased pulmonary blood flow can also be appreciated if the ASD has been long-standing and is large. MRI can be helpful if there's not an ability to clearly see all the key neighboring structures by echo. And cath is rarely needed except in the circumstances where there is already pulmonary vascular obstructive disease that has developed or if there is an inability to adequately quantify the degree of pulmonary blood flow preoperatively. Cath is obviously used when devices are used to close the atrial septal defect but is rarely used as a diagnostic tool in and of itself.
0: Point of clarification. Catheter intervention can only be done for secundum ASDs where there are sufficient rims. Secundum ASDs can also be closed surgically. Primum ASDs and sinus venosus defects are not amenable to closure in the catheterization lab and must be closed surgically. Initial Management Strategies
1: Now, the management of patients with atrial septal defects uh, is very limited because they often present asymptomatically. The management really revolves around deciding on how best to repair the lesion. The two main options available to most people are either a catheter intervention, if there's sufficient rims to occlude the defect, or a surgical intervention, which is the traditional mainstay uh, repair that has been around the longest. The morbidity and mortality of both of these options are extremely low, with less than 1% mortality reported overall. It's important to remember, however, that patients who've had closure of the atrial septal defect via surgical repair are are at risk for post-pericardiotomy syndrome, which is an immune-modulated effusive response that leads to a pericardial effusion one to six weeks after repair. Uh, This syndrome can be life-threatening and it presents with the usual symptoms of pericardial effusion, such as hypotension, muffled heart sounds, or an exaggerated JVD impulse. Deciding who to repair is center-specific but there are a few things that we have seen that carries over to all centers. If the defect is greater than eight millimeters, they rarely if ever close on their own and that will require repair. And it's worth considering an earlier repair in those patients. Typically they're closed around three to four years of age prior to going to school, but before the development of pulmonary vascular obstructive disease. Defects that are less than three millimeters, however, often close spontaneously, and those can usually be watched for a few years. However, if you have a defect that's five millimeters with still significant shunt uh, seen by echocardiography, it's worth considering closure of that, again, around the age of three to four years. So in summary, atrial septal defects are very common overall, and they're commonly seen in other cardiac lesions. Up to 50% of all cardiac constellations include an atrial septal defect. They usually present as an asymptomatic patient during a well child check with a 2 over 6 systolic ejection murmur at the left upper sternal border. So early detection of these lesions is very important to overcome the effects of pulmonary vascular obstructive disease that can develop if they're not caught early on. Imaging can be very straightforward, usually with echocardiography and there's the x-ray and EKG findings of right heart enlargements and increased pulmonary blood flow. And finally, the management is by closure, either in the cath lab or surgically.
0: This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.